Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, we're talking about the Disney live-action epic remake of the animated film Mulan. The film was edited by Dave Coulson, a New Zealander collaborating with fellow Kiwi director Nikki Caro. David's been editing since 1981. His filmography includes The Zookeeper's Wife, McFarland USA, North Country, and Whale Rider, among many others. The first thing I want to talk about is the director. You and Nikki Caro have worked on uh, numerous movies together. Can you tell me a little bit about how that relationship began? And um, just let's start there. Nikki and I both met in um, Auckland, uh, New Zealand. We were working Separately, we had kind of separate careers to a point, and then in the late 90s, we um, we collaborated on some commercials together, and kind of really enjoyed that. Following that, the picture um, Whale Rider came up, and Nikki was going to make that, and she approached me to work on that. It was kind of around 2000, so we've been working sort of on and off over the next kind of 20 years on a variety of films. What are some of the hidden benefits to having? that long-term relationship with a director when you get on a film like Mulan? I think the key benefit we had um, in coming together on Mulan was we had an established trust. I think trust is the kind of coin of the realm in the creative process. And particularly when we were embarking on something of this nature, something of this scale, uh, which um, neither of us had um, tackled before, quality became paramount. And uh, as time went on, that was vindicated because we were working in different hemispheres for majority of the shoot, um, well, most of the shoot, in fact. Uh, Nikki was in New Zealand, I was in LA, so I was not physically able to be in her immediate area. So um, it became even more important. Uh, we had, you know, communications every kind of week or thereabouts where we could actually scan and look at material that I've been working on and um, we could speak sort of daily. She would quite often call me as she was driving to set. Um, I would tell you how I was going. She would tell me how she was going. But essentially the cornerstone of it was was having trust, trust in our ability to, to my ability to discern uh, what um, she was trying to achieve in the project, and uh, certainly she was trusting that I was holding it together up, up in my end. When you have such a, a relationship where you kind of know quite well the other person's working style, were you able to have any kind of communication about, for example, intent or point of view before shooting started, or did she kind of just want to let you examine the material without that kind of uh, communication? It depended on the particular scenes or sequences you're talking about. I think some of them were quite heavily pre and storyboarded ahead of time. Um, in fact, I collaborated on putting together a lot of the pre So structurally, I kind of knew where scenes were heading. But of course, there were many other scenes that hadn't had that kind of attention. Really, it was a question of 
feeling my way through the material, knowing how what Nikki's sensibilities were, her intentions, well, they're self-evident to me um, when I'm putting scenes together. So it wasn't really um, an, an issue of trying to find the way through many scenes. Occasionally that happened, but uh, it was very much a question of putting them together as I felt and I would dispatch scenes to her. She could see them remotely in New Zealand, kind of offer me any guidance if she felt we were in need of further amplification or underlining of you know, thematical performance questions. But generally it ran very smoothly. Uh, I've heard from many editors about directors who either are under such under the gun that they can't view those kind of preliminary edits that happen during dailies or they don't want to. Um, but don't you think that that helps a lot to relieve some of the anxiety as you approach them viewing an assembly, uh, an editor's assembly or starting into director's cut? I personally do, yeah. I sort of think that the fact they've had some familiarity with the material as it's been assembled provides them with some kind of foreknowledge of um, of what's to come. And even though a number of the weeks might have elapsed between the time they first saw uh, an assembly and when they uh, an assembled scene when they see it in the, the final assembly of the of the film, I think even just some familiarity sort of helps set everyone at ease. That's my personal opinion, anyway. I'm sure you know Nikki's uh, strengths and what she is able to bring as a director after working with her on so many films. What do you think it was that the producers or Disney saw in her abilities that wanted her for this particular picture for Mulan? I think Nikki's gifts are manifold, and I think they were aware of a multitude of qualities that she has. I think that in all the films that she's worked on, all the ones I've collaborated on with her, she's demonstrated an extraordinary capability of defining the milieu or the culture and the location of where the stories happen. I think that that would have been a definite quality that they would have seen and seen her and noticed. I think also her capability in terms of performance and seeing an essential truth emotionally, I think that's an important quality that that Nikki brings, and I think they clearly wanted something special in this instance with this particular um, well-loved and uh, appreciated Disney property. So I think those would be the two key things that come to mind immediately. But also, I mean, she just has a great capacity to visualize and create scenes that haven't been seen before necessarily and, and put together combinations of sound and action and performance that are truthful and speak to a wider truth as well. One of the things that I definitely recognized when I watched the film was the thing that you mentioned of the milieu and the culture seems almost like a character in this movie. The The locations are just stunning. Can you talk to me a little bit about the pace of the film and wanting to be able to open up some of those moments to be able to not have to present story and not have to present plot or even character for that matter, but to be able to just um, see the beauty of, of the film. In all the films we've done, we've attempted to spend some time defining the locales and the 
areas in which our stories occur. The trick is not to be gratuitous in it and to integrate the material thematically as much as anything else into the story. I mean, I remember in um, North Country, which we shot up in the Iron Range in northern Minnesota, we had numerous amazing shots towards the front of the film, which were beautiful in themselves, but they also spoke to the kind of story we were going to be telling, the scale of the story we were going to be telling, sort of a cold beauty. I think we tried to do the same in Mulan. So sometimes we would be able to integrate both elements. We could have incredible story happening with incredible landscape happening in the same frames. I mean, these were, it's exploiting some of the extraordinary landscape in, in New Zealand and also some areas in China. So um, we were able to sort of integrate both. And that's what, you know, we're trying always to do to um, keep a sense of the scale of where we were, where the story was happening, but trying not to upset the balance and make it too languid and too descriptive just for description's sake. Uh, I love the idea of editing as having dynamics like music. Can you talk a little bit about trying to play with the slower, more thoughtful moments and then the incredible action scenes and being able to regulate the those two things? I think there are definite sort of similarities between music and editing, you know, and I, I tinker around musically myself and I and I think there are sort of parallels between the two all the time, just as in music where, you know, sort of symphonically speaking, you have adagios, you have slow moving passages, and then you have extremely active sort of schizo, schizzy kind of passages. These things kind of counterpoint each other and they provide kind of a contrast to each other. Early on when I'm involved in a film, there's a period where I'm trying to discern the kind of DNA that makes this particular movie different. What is the kind of North Star, if you like, or what is the you know, musical terms, what, what key is this movie in? And once I've established that, and it usually takes two or three weeks, it sort of helps define and helps navigate every creative decision that occurs subsequently because I know it's all part of the same integrated whole. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with David Colson. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on filmtools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on filmtools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to filmtools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with David Colson. Do you find that you need to go back, since you're obviously editing out of order, once you've discovered that DNA, do you feel like some of the decisions you've made earlier might not line up with that DNA? Uh, absolutely so. 
yeah, I mean, I think as the movie takes form, uh, you have to listen to it, and the more you do, the more you pay attention to it, the more it will tell you where there are sort of errant moments or moments that don't feel quite integrated into the whole. I think it's a question of this kind of interplay or dance that goes on, and certainly you find um, by revisiting scenes or moments that you tackled right at the front, sometimes you had it out of the park on the first pass, and these are um, extraordinarily gratifying moments. <laughs> Other times, you know, you have to sort of listen to what the movie's telling you. And in my experience, it's always kind of told me the right things and I've been able to um, make um, the necessary compensations and adjustments. Uh, were there any kind of deviations structurally from the script that you and Nikki had to navigate as you saw the film in context? There were one or two, uh, and I think that's part of the process of any film. I mean, it's it's to do with moving from words on paper to people in, on the screen and photography on the screen, capturing extraordinary moments on the screen. There were one or two where we moved scenes forward or possibly made them later. Again, it's a question of just listening to the and watching the film as it forms. Essentially, you know, we didn't do any any huge lifts and transference because you know we had like a linear journey of Mulan from um, childhood through to um, to warrior. The big things um, didn't uh, well they remained in in place. Speaking about warrior, <laughs> being a warrior, talk to me a little bit about the fight scenes. I'm sure that the amount of dailies you received for some of those big action scenes was significant. How do you navigate that amount of material? It still comes down to um, telling the story, despite the um, quantity of material coming in. You still have to be discerning what is the story that's going to take place in the scene. There was a vast amount of material coming in, but one knew that if we had like an hour's material coming in for a scene, we would know that Despite all that, the scene can only be three minutes long or whatever it might be. So just that process of staying clear about what are the story moments, the story pieces, the story beats that have to be articulated and emphasized, that becomes the navigation tool to work through it. And some of these scenes I've worked on in, uh, back in the previous days, so I knew the overall structure. It was simply a question of defining how much we were going to depart from that. Occasionally we did, but it was a question of just articulating it as clearly and as eloquently as possible. What would have been one of the reasons why you did depart from an original structure? Is it as you see something in context, or what are some of those reasons? Sometimes there are things that happen that are extraordinary, and it might be a piece of action, a piece of performance, but these are things that you have to and my and certainly Nikki's experience stay open towards incorporating. And so there'll be uh, times where we found we were able to include things. There were other times where we found we wanted to compress and that it's fine to be working on a previous scene in isolation, but in the overall context of the, with the movie wrapped around it, sometimes something that you thought was really important becomes less so. So there'll be times where we would just compress or eliminate story sections. So it was a constant ongoing exercise in that respect. But for the most part, the sequences represented very much the intention as, as shot. 
I would love to talk a little bit more about the mechanics of approaching, for example, that climactic battle scene at the end. There's that's so long, and um, you know, there's so much great action, and there must have been so much material. Were you breaking things down into smaller bins? Are you a selects real person? Markers? How are you wrapping your brain around that much material? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? As you'd know from editing, editing is, is such a sort of unique and distinct activity. Talking about editing and editing, it's a bit like, you know, dancing about editing. In an overall context, I think I would say that if you're talking about the um, whole sequence where the uh, the two armies come together, and it really was a question of biting off sections and devoting time to articulating each of these sections as well as possible, not getting too concerned about the overall too soon. That can sort of happen later, you know. Finding the critical moments. It was always our intention to be aware of where Mulan was at any time in the story. And so she became the sort of fulcrum around around which everything turned. In the first instance, it was a question of pairing things back that were not helping us track um, Mulan and her journey through whatever action is unfolding. And then it was a question of articulating as best as possible her involvement in the action. That might be you know, a cerebral process where she's thinking about something and putting something together, or it might be a physical process where she's actually doing something, causing something to happen, intervening in something. Those are the kinds of questions that were always dominant in trying to um, put these scenes together. Did you watch the animated film at all before you started cutting this film, like immediately before or within weeks or months? Yes, I did. I did see the animated film before. I tend not to get too involved in source material of pictures that I work on. I tend not to read the books. I'd rather stay within the realm of the movie. And so in this case, yes, I definitely wanted to see the, um, the animated film, so I had a, a touchstone as to where it had come from, what it had done, and also, of course, what an audience who had also seen the, the um, pre-existing film would bring to the uh, the experience of watching Almodovar. I know that you've been editing since at least the early 80s, which puts you before nonlinear. Can you talk to me about that transition from cutting on film or were you cutting on video to cutting on uh, nonlinear? I definitely started back in the day of steam-powered film engines and <laughs> cutting on those. And when I learned, when I watched um, other editors working, I could see them scanning backwards and forwards. I could see them reach forward with their chinograph, making a mark and pulling it back and making a cup of the guillotine splicer and finding what they were going to join on, splicing it up and running it through and so forth. And I think that process of deliberation and so forth is much more sort of visible when you're learning. I am sort of concerned for people coming forward in the industry. Some of that process is less visible and I do try to have interactions with my assistants and um, others around, you know, in in terms of helping them be aware of the process as, as I'm working forward. But I found the transition actually surprisingly easy. There was a very awkward period where they were trying to do some weird kind of hybrid thing with video 
but it wasn't really non-linear, and that was like working with quick-setting cement, and I, was, I found that <laughs> impossible. And uh, and so I thought, well, one day someone will work this out, and we will have a truly sort of plastic, moldable uh, medium to work in electronically. And I'm so glad that, that that has transpired. And I think it's like all tools, you know, you have to use them to the best of your capability, and um, and I think they'll reward you. Uh, when you do. And is there a discipline that you brought forward from film editing into digital? Possibly it's being very deliberate. When I first started working professionally, we were working in reversal film. That meant um, you had to consider your cuts quite carefully. You couldn't just cavalierly kind of start carving in because then you would end up with splices through all of the material you were trying to um, broadcast on on air. So I think that process of deliberation, of taking time, not going in too deep, I tend to sort of work wide and, and then start tightening as the film progresses rather than cutting extremely tightly extremely soon. I think that would be one of the key similarities that I brought from working in film across into the digital realm. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Sure. Much appreciated. I've um, enjoyed talking to you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, David Colson. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.